introduce myself again, I guess. The, the last time we were here, we were here on a Wednesday night. Um, it was a very quick visit, a very um, pleasant visit, and you guys took us on as missionaries to the country of Norway. Again, we're appointees, meaning that we're not yet there, obviously. Uh, we had reached 91% and of our required monthly support, and then unfortunately two weeks ago, we were told of a, an additional cost. So now we're back to 86%. Uh, so if you would pray for us, uh, that, that small additional cost has dropped us a little bit, um, but we uh, pray for us also in travel, this week starts, we are going to be on the road till December 1st, I believe. Uh, so pray for us the next two or three months as we travel. We are going to Norway on, on a kind of like a pre-survey uh, trip to kind of go and uh, see where we might be living and where we'll be uh, practical things like getting a license, getting a card, getting language school set up, stuff like this. Uh, so we'll be joining them for a conference in October. Uh, that'll be the first week of October through, I think the 19th of October we'll be in Norway. Um, and then coming back and hitting the road again uh, that very next weekend, I believe. <clears throat> so pray for us as we travel. Uh, we'll be always in Europe. We'll be in New York. We'll be in Pennsylvania. Um, so pray for us as we, as we go. Um, also pray for our support. We are uh, hopefully by the end of this uh, year, we will be able to uh, at least be thinking about moving. So uh, we'll get that last bit of support in. And so that's, that's our two big prayer requests, really, is our, our remaining support and also um, our traveling this fall. As we're approaching uh, this day, this, this message, uh, traditionally when I've been, this year anyway, when I've been asked to preach, usually it's presenting our ministry and uh, you don't get to really get outside of... Uh, Norway so much in, in your presentations. Uh, and so when I do get an opportunity to preach uh, on anything that I want, uh, I want to do something um, systematic. And so I've been preaching this past year through the Psalms. Uh, and technically, I'm only on Psalm 9. Um, but two weeks ago, I was asked to be uh, part of a conference, a Bible con pastor's conference, and I was asked to be on a panel. And the panel was discussing uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. And I was, during that week of thinking up towards that panel discussion, I was drawn to Psalm chapter 19. And I was, it's been on my mind since then, and so I thought, and for today we would continue this study, if not for my own benefit, but hopefully for all of our benefits. Psalm chapter 19. I'll read it here, and then we will pray and begin. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. <clears throat> their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, written thousands of years ago, we pray, Lord, that you would allow this text to be illuminated into our minds. Holy Spirit, make this text jump up from its pages. Make it sear our hearts. Allow us, Lord, to bask in your text this morning. Allow it to speak to our hearts. Allow us to learn what David is trying to tell us, which is still applicable to us today. Father, I pray that you would allow your word to speak through me this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So as we approach Psalm 19, you probably already noticed this, but we ought to remind ourselves of at least one theological truth that is kind of foundation or foundational to this psalm. And that is this, that God has chosen freely and of his own goodwill to reveal himself. That should be absolutely astounding to our minds. God has chosen to reveal himself. Consider this. Before creation, before man, before time began, God eternally existed. He was and still is wholly complete, sufficient, and satisfied in and of himself. This is what theologians refer to as the aseity of God, meaning that God did not need anything or anyone to be satisfaction, have satisfaction. He was complete and fully whole. And yet, as we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God reveals himself instantly, namely his power and glory in and through his creation. Logically, as God is the, was the only uncreated being, or is the only uncreated being, originally there was nothing and no one around to know he existed. But, after God created, there was not only visible evidence of his creation, but there was also creatures able to know that he exists. God reveals himself through the act of creating, which is, as we already noted, he didn't really have to do. Matthew Henry once said that, Revelation is God's unmasking of himself. His voluntary act of disclosure, God steps out of his hiddenness to disclose what would otherwise remain secret and unknown. Genesis 1 continues this story uh, of revelation by noting that the climax of God's creative work, man, who was made in God's image, 
Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in His image. As an extension of God's revealing of Himself, through His creation, He creates man. He creates man in such a fashion as to enjoy fellowship with His Creator. We know this because immediately after God created them, He speaks to them. Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them and said to them. Not only has God created a relational being, but He speaks to them. Which should be even more astounding, considering that God would be perfectly justified in creating man who has the ability to know that he exists, deduced through creation, yet has no further intention to speak to him. God would be perfectly justified in doing that. But yet, out of his goodness, out of his grace, and out of his mercy, he chooses to speak. So theologians have long recognized these two forms of divine revelation as general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is sometimes called natural revelation, meaning uh, that revelation of God by His creation. When I say that theologians have long since discussed these two forms of revelation, Irenaeus, writing around 150, 180 A.D., he says this, Creation reveals Him who formed it, and the very work made suggests Him who made it, and the world Manifest him who ordered it. Fast forward, B.B. Warfield refers to general revelation as the revelation which God continuously makes to all men. By it, his power and divinity are made known. So essentially, general revelation is known to all men either by way of external creation of God, what we see in nature, or that inward testimony that was written upon the hearts. Paul picks this up in Romans. And he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So, through creation and inward testimony, God has revealed His existence to all men. Some have said, and they said rightly, there are no atheists. There are men who know God and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Special revelation, often referred to as supernatural revelation, is that revelation of God by His Word. Joel Beakey, in a recent book, writes, God's first act towards man, recorded in the Bible after God created him, was verbal revelation for relationship and service. This is important to note. God has always intended to communicate with man. This is not something he had to do after the fall. It's something he has chosen to do all along. In fact, it's, it's necessary. One theologian says, special revelation was necessary from man's beginning because man's finite nature could not in itself grasp the full understanding necessary to please God in all things. 
and it has become even more necessary because of the negative effects of the fall, which has had on the minds of all his descendants. <clears throat> As we will discuss later, there are limitations with general revelation. While it clearly testifies the existence of God, as Paul notes, it basically primarily reveals his eternal power and divine nature. Thus, and this is the key, while you may know there is a God through uh, general revelation, divine uh, nature, divine creation, you will never fully truly know God without special revelation. Special revelation brings to light his moral qualities of faithfulness and righteousness and reveals his holy will for our lives. You can already see that special revelation is in some sense greater than general revelation. In Psalm 19, David considers both types of revelation. Everybody knows this. John Calvin has said, this psalm consists of two parts. In the first of which, David celebrates the glory of God as manifested in his works. In the other, exalts and magnifies the knowledge of God, which shines forth more clearly in his word. <clears throat> David portrays the universe as an inaudible proclamation of the glory of God in Psalm 19, 1-6. You may not hear it, David says, but creation is continually declaring the glory of God. <clears throat> David then considers the Word of God in Psalm 19, 7-11, identifying it as a greater revelation, a revelation with power to revive <clears throat> the soul and enlighten the eyes, a precious treasure offering, a sweet reward. <clears throat> Finally, in 1912-14, David models the appropriate response of one who has been transformed by the Word of God. <clears throat> you have to bear with me, my allergies have been on fire this week. <clears throat> the psalm itself provides no superscription to inform the reader when or why David was inspired to write. <clears throat> However, considering how the psalm began, it is reasonable to think that David was gazing towards the heavens, <clears throat> considering the glory of the heavens. Some have suggested that David may be thinking back towards a time when he was lying in the fields, keeping watch over his father's flocks by night. <clears throat> that David was thinking about the glory of God as revealed in the heavens, whatever the case may be. David begins his psalms by saying, the heavens declare <clears throat> the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. David here suggests that creation speaks of God. Notice the verbs to declare, <clears throat> to proclaim. The term David uses for declare is often rendered speak or to tell or to show forth. And it signifies this, <clears throat> this narration or a, or a preaching. The term translated proclaims carries the idea of standing up front and boldly announcing or praising. Both terms carry a, a continual connotation, meaning that the heavens and the sky above <clears throat> continually Proclaim the glory of God and his handiwork. David also personifies the heavens and the sky above 
as a herald who declares the glory of God. And the sky above the firmament as his handiwork or the work of his hands. <clears throat> Notice also the obvious connection with Genesis 1. You see the words heavens and the sky above. Sky above is actually the same word that Genesis 1.6 uses as the expanse. So David is probably thinking back towards the creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. David's thinking back towards uh, Genesis 1. And I think actually he builds upon this connection with Genesis 1 later in Psalm 19. What is, what is designed by David to be intended here by heavens and the sky above is that these are terms that embrace all of creation, excluding the earth. So it's what you see as you look into the heavens. Well, then what does the heavens and the sky above tell us about God? As verse 1 notes, they declare his glory and his handiwork, meaning the work of his hands. That is why Paul writes in Romans again, for his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. William Plumer says this, that from his works we may learn his existence, his goodness, wisdom, power, sincerity, and providence. The heavens continually declare that God is infinitely glorious. This continuation, this, this continual connotation is continued in verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The perpetual connotation is continued into verse 2. Day after day, night after night, the heavens and the sky above pour out speech and reveal knowledge. Spurgeon, who can say it better than anybody possibly can, I, I believe he was truly a genius. He says this, as if one day <clears throat> took up the story where the other left it. And each night passed over the wondrous tale to the next. The original has in it the thought of pouring out or a welling over with speech. So as the day and the nights were but a fountain flowing evermore with Jehovah's praise. I think he's actually nailing, uh, hitting the nail on the head here. David is saying that this declaration or this proclamation of the heavens continues all day. And when day turns to night, night merely picks up where the day left off. Notice the verbs again. To, to pour out is to refer to a, a gushing or an abundant flow from a fountain. And it's, it's an idea is designed to reveal or to simply show. What then is do the heavens pour out and continually praise? The answer is speech and knowledge. Again, he personifies the heavens as heralds whose speech contains knowledge. But then he has an interesting verse. Verse 3 is very, very intriguing. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. <clears throat> this verse is, is, is admittedly was a challenge to me. What does he mean by this? Well, there's two suggestions that have come down through, through uh, commentators. The first is David is suggesting here that the heavens and the sky above are clearly seen by all men in keeping with Romans. So with this emphasis, <clears throat> which is true, but with this emphasis, the verse would suggest that there is no language around the world, there's no speech, or there's no words, or there's no voice that is heard on earth that has not seen uh, God revealed in nature. 
But I find really this, this interpretation to be unlikely for at least two reasons. First, it would break the flow of David's thinking very, very, very abruptly. Uh, he would be going from speaking about nature and how it glorifies God to suddenly talking about language groups. The second reason I don't think this is, is really the, the way it ought to be interpreted is that it would cause David to write in a needlessly redundant manner. Because that which, if he is saying that all people groups around the earth have, have seen this, this uh, proclamation of nature, he repeats himself in verse 4, which says their voice goes out throughout the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. That's, it's, it's a repetitive. What I think is the second way we should interpret this verse, David's intended meaning <clears throat> is that the heavens and the sky above creation they truly do speak, but they don't use words. They don't use vocal speech. They don't use vocal words. They don't have an audible voice. With this emphasis, the verse appears to say that there is no audible nature of their speaking, but they still, but even still, as you lose into verse 4, their voice is still heard. That's the idea, I think, behind David's uh, Topic here in verse 3. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Verse 4. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Here David makes a case that their voice, meaning the heavens and the sky above their voice, while not audible, goes throughout all the earth. And their words, which are not actual vocabulary, uh, they go to the end of the world. This is why... Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth so that they are without excuse. Paul argues that the wrath of God is revealed against all men because all men are able to see and have had access to this general revelation, this, this crying out of nature to the existence of God. Therefore, all men know that God exists, and yet they suppress it in unrighteousness. This then is David's point here up to verse 4, is that all men have received the testimony of the heavens and the sky above and the glory of God. All men are, uh, are receiving this continually. And he gives us an example. David, David's being practical here. Okay, I'm going to give you an example of how this works. In them he has set a tent for the sun. David directs our attention to the sun. In them, referring to the heavens and the sky above, uh, God has placed a, the tent for the sun. The tent here is the same word we use for tabernacle, literally meaning a, a dwelling place. So what he's saying in a very poetic way is that the sun makes its dwelling place in the heavens. Not too hard to understand. <clears throat> but then he goes like this which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, we have to use our imagination here. Guys, remember back when you were a, a, uh, a fiancé? On the day of your wedding, you wake up, and you come out of your room, and the look on your face ought to be extreme joy. This radiant beaming of, of inward joy that you get to go be with your betrothed. That is the idea here. David is describing the sunrise 
as the sun comes out. It is like the groom who comes out ready to grab his bride. Sun comes out beaming. David continues by comparing the sun to a strong man, running its course with joy. Strong man can be interpreted a mighty man, a champion. The idea he's probably referring to is what we would closely you know, resemble as the, the Olympic Games, a, a, an athlete ready to come out for his event. He wants to demonstrate his ability in his event. And this is what David says, the, the sun comes out as an athlete ready to run its course, as an, ath, as an athlete ready to win the race. The sun comes out with intention. The apparent eagerness of the sun to rise once again, even after it's done a thousand years. The sun rises with the same eagerness. Its rising, David continues in verse 6, is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And I, here is what David is, is giving an example of. That, that the heavens have been proclaimed around the entire earth. David is saying here that, don't take it too literally as in the sense of the end of the heavens, as in the sun is rising up from the end of the known universe. What he's talking about is our observable heavens. The sun rises up from one side and runs all the way to the other side, from east to west. Sun rises up. And notice he says, there is nothing hidden from its heat. The idea he's getting across is the sun itself, as an example of the, the glory of God being proclaimed throughout the entire earthly creation, the sun itself is a prime example. There is nothing and no one on the earth that hasn't experienced at least the heat of the sun. It is here that David switches from natural or general revelation to special revelation. Some have made the connection in the same way that nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. David, that is his transition. There is nothing that is going to be hidden from the word of God as well. I don't like that connection, but some have made that. Some have made that transition. I think David is now transitioning into special revelation to show that special revelation is greater than general revelation. <clears throat> A few things tell us this. First, did you notice the name of God in verses 1 through 6? He uses it once. God, meaning uh, the, the term is El, a shortened version of Elohim. He doesn't even use the entire, the, the entire word of God, the name of God, Elohim. He uses just a shortened version of it, El. It's probably the most um, generic, I guess, way to refer to God in, in all of Scripture. But notice as he switches to special revelation, he switches to Lord. All capitalized, meaning Jehovah. This is the covenant name revealed to Moses in Exodus, Exodus 3. This is a very personal way of identifying the name of God, of referring to God. It seems to suggest here that special revelation is at the very least a more personal revelation than general revelation. Notice also the use of descriptive adjectives. The law of the Lord is perfect. Sure, right, pure, clean, and true. David does not direct this type of praise towards creation. He reserves it for God's word alone. Notice also the effectual power. 
that David says the word has. It has a power to revive the soul, to make wise the simple, to rejoice the heart, to enlighten the eyes. Essentially what David is inherently doing here, and I've said it before, he's arguing that special revelation, God's word, is greater than general revelation. Not that it's lesser revelation, but that its intent is greater. God's creation is intended for you to know he exists. God's special revelation is, is intended for you to know him. There's a difference. So let's read this section. We'll take it as a whole. <clears throat> the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, <clears throat> enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now you ask, why are we taking this all together? Not walking through it uh, verse by verse by verse. Well, it's all part of a uh, what was, what's called Hebrew poetic parallelism, meaning they all deal with the same thing. Boyce says this. He says that there are six parallel statements in these verses, and each contains three elements that are likewise parallel. There are six terms written for the uh, for the written revelation, six adjectives to describe it, and six statements of what the Bible does. And so, for example, <clears throat> David uses six nouns, all of which are referring to written revelation, special revelation, God's word, scripture. He starts with the most inclusive term, the law, which here literally means all that God has revealed through written revelation, through spoken revelation. He then follows up this, he follows this up with five similar nouns, which are designed, but to, to uh, they're designed to talk about different facets of written revelation, but be sure they're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about the written revelation of God. The testimony refers to that, just that, the witness or testimony of God and the truth that he reveals. The precepts and the commandment of the Lord are kind of similar. They're, they're, they both refer to the statutes or the mandates of God given to man. The one that stands out, if you notice, is, is, is the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is clean. Be sure that he does not break from his parallelism here. He is doing, we learned a big word yesterday, we actually looked it up and, saw, and, and determined what it is, metonymy. It's the idea of you are explaining or referring to the word by the effect that it has. So when you are in the word of God, the word of God produces the fear of the Lord. And so now he refers to the Bible as the fear of the Lord. It is enduring forever. This is a holy fear, a reverence. And finally, he uses the word rules or judgments, which is simply means that which God has determined right and true. And so as we move to the adjectives, just know that all those terms are referring to God's written revelation, his general or sorry, his special revelation. This is Hebrew parallelism, which is to say that each adjective is equally applicable to each noun. So what, what David is not saying is the law of the Lord is perfect, oh, but, but not his testimony. Not, not his precepts, nor his commandments, just the law. No, David is, is using adjectives to apply to each noun. So not only the law of the Lord is perfect, his testimony is perfect. His precepts are perfect. 
so on and so forth. And so you can apply each adjective to each noun. Why does David do this? Well, I think that the repetition here of these terms is describing different aspects of uh, the perfection or the wholeness of the law of God. Keep in mind here that uh, David may intend, um, by the use of the phrase, all of, uh, of the Lord, David may intend here two things. First, David is making it perfectly clear that only written revelation of God, of Jehovah, of the Lord, is perfect, right, pure, clean, true, by insinuation, not man's. Man's laws are not perfectly clean, pure, true. Second, he notes that this is precisely because they have come from God that they are right, perfect, sure, clean, true. And why is that? Because God who reveals them is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So David says the law of the Lord is perfect. He means that the entire counsel of God is sufficient, complete, or full, not lacking nor deficient in any way. The testimony of the Lord is sure. This carries the idea of being established, built up, or supported, the, uh, the way a parent might support their children. This is kind of the idea that is being crossed here. David echoes its trustworthiness uh, later when he says that, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth in Psalm 119, for my hope is in your rules. He hopes in the rules. The precepts of the Lord are right, he says. This term carries the idea of being straight as opposed to crooked in respect to righteousness. The commandment of the Lord is pure. This has the idea of being free from all stain and from all imperfection from any corrupt tendencies. As Psalm 12 notes, the word of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace and on the ground purified seven times. The fear of the Lord is clean. This carries much, very much the same idea as being, uh, being pure. The, the fear of the Lord is clean, which is to say that it lacks decay. The idea here is something that is decaying does not endure. But yet, that which lacks decay is able to, what does it say, endure forever. And finally, the rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. This is to say that the testimony of Scripture is entirely accurate and just. Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true 151, but, you're, but you are near, O Lord, and your commandments are true. 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So David is basically uh, giving us here the sufficiency of Scripture. Now then we come to the effectual power of the word of God in man. What does the word of God produce? Look in verse 7 again, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The term reviving here is elsewhere translated converting, depending on what translation you have. And it conveys the idea of, of a turning back to a previous point. So what does David mean? It helps to, to think about what David is saying by not actually saying it. What is his implications or insinuations? If the word of God can revive the soul, convert the soul, what does that tell us about the condition of man's soul? 
tells us, at the very least, David is suggesting that men have souls that need to be revived, have souls that need to be converted. The soul here is a uh, is very generally used as a breathing creature. The idea is that all of man needs to be revived and converted. Could it be that David is actually thinking about Genesis 1 again? Or Genesis, the, the creation account in Genesis 3? What happened at the fall? Man sinned against God, and doing so, he became eternally separated from their creator. Paul explains it like this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Man's sin separated us from God. Additionally, man was corrupted by this indwelling sin. And it wasn't long in the Genesis account before we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was evil continually. So then we see that David is quite right. We see that man needs to be revived. He needs to be converted, turned around, back to the point before sin. By this means, David means that the Word of God has the ability to return man back to the condition before sin has corrupted him. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now this is this is, a, this is a great irony, I think you'll see. Consider the fall of Gin. What, what point does Eve actually eat of the fruit? Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be what? To make one wise. So here's Eve being, desiring to be made wise, and what happens is they become fools. One of the reasons man chose to rebel against God was the desire to be made wise. Paul recognizes this. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkening. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Seeking wisdom, they earned foolishness. And yet David says true wisdom is only found in God, in His Word. Especially, he would say, that wisdom which produces or leads to salvation. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. A mistake man makes, I think one of our biggest mistakes, is that we think true joy can be found in what God has created rather than in Creator. This is, again, not what Eve did. She saw that the... The tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. And yet what? Threw her into everlasting misery. Yet true joy, this rejoicing of the heart, is found only in the Lord and His precepts. Spurgeon says this, the wordsmith that he is, Earth-born mirth dwells on the lip and flushes the bodily powers, but heavenly delights satisfy the inner nature and fill the mental faculties to the brim. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Once again, we see a parallel here with Genesis 3, which was impressed upon David's thinking assuredly. He says, notice the irony again, that upon eating the fruit in Genesis, the eyes of both of them were opened. And yet the Bible will continually say that they have become darkened. Their eyes may have been opened, but they became blinded. And what David here is saying is that 
the word of the Lord has the ability to give light to darkened eyes, to enlighten the eyes. Psalm 119, 105, not only in just the conversion sense, but also in a sense of how we walk in the Christian life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. Your word enlightens the eyes. So then in summary, what do we say about these verses? Well, man is by nature at enmity with God, dead in his trespasses and sins, yet by the grace of God, his revealed word is able to revive the soul. David is speaking of salvation here. Furthermore, his, after his conversion, the revived man seeks wisdom, joy, and guidance or discernment in the word. You could see that displayed in Psalm 119, which we won't take the time to read. Psalm, uh, Paul echoes the words of David when he writes to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well then, one might say, sounds like this special revelation of God. His written word is quite valuable. Notice what David says. More are they to be desired than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. This is the proper response of one who has been converted by the word. He recognizes the, the, the invaluable nature of the word of God. What is more valuable than gold in a worldly sense? Nothing. Well, there might be something, but in David's time, what is more valuable than gold? Nothing. And yet David says the scriptures are more valuable than gold. Actually, more valuable than the, the purest of gold you can find. And not just pure gold, but a plethora of pure gold. The Word of God is still more valuable. Oh, but they're sweet too. Sweeter than honey. What's more sweet than honey? Nothing is sweeter than honey. It's, a, it's, it's sweeter than honey taken straight from the, the honeycomb. That is what David is saying here. Moreover, he says in verse 11, by them your servant, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. David reveals for us here the parallelism actually continues into verse 11. Gives us two more benefits of the word of God or the power of the word of God. First, it gives warning. Well, warning of what? Well, this is a huge answer. We're glossing over a lot of theological concepts, but we'll just stick with just Psalm 19. What is David warned of in Psalm 19? Well, it warns that he needs to have his soul revived. It needs to have his soul converted. What else? By revealing the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, and the rules of the Lord, one is warned to fear God and live according to them. Second, in keeping them, meaning the whole counsel of God, there is great reward. Now, we don't quite know the, the insinuation that David is saying here. Is he saying that in keeping them, the act of keeping them is a reward to you? because you're living a godly life, which is pleasing, not only to you, but also to a good life? Or is he saying, by keeping them, as a result of keeping them, you will have much reward? Either way, the idea is still true. That in keeping them, meaning the, the statutes and the law of God and the word of God, in keeping them, there is great reward. Now, again, David wants to give us an example. Let me portray to you this, how, how this works. Who can discern his errors? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Who can discern his errors? 
David has just finished telling us that, that in them we are warned, and in keeping them, meaning the word, the, the, the written revelation, we are, there's great reward. Thus he begins by noting that he is unable to see his sin apart from the written revelation of God. It's a rhetorical question. Who can, who can discern his errors? No one. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the written revelation of God, no one can apart from the law of God. Paul says this in Romans 3, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So essentially David is thinking, or sorry, thanking and praising God for his word which reveals our sinfulness. You imagine how horrific it would be to, to need to be converted but not know it? David here is, and the insinuation here is David is repenting of sins that the word of God reveals. He's repenting and seeking forgiveness of his said errors here. Error is, you'll see a, a, a progression of terms here. You'll see error, you will see hidden faults, and you'll see presumptuous sins. It's a progression of sins. Error simply means uh, a moral mistake, a sin. That is what David is repenting of. He continues by asking God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. These are not faults that David has hidden, like in the example of Bathsheba. These are faults or sins that he doesn't know about. David understands the severity and the seriousness of sin so much in his life that he wishes to be rid even that which he is unaware of. Notice also, I think some, what, I've, what I've been really impressed with by studying the Psalms is the deep theology and understanding of David, at least of David, in the Psalms. He understands that God is not only willing, but able to declare him innocent, to purify him, to cleanse him, to make him clean of his sins. You have a foreshadowing of the work of Christ on the cross. David understands this. So he says, not only am I repenting of my known sins, God, point out the sins that I don't know about and purify me from them. Finally, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Spurgeon kind of explains this. He says, the earnest and humble prayer teaches us that saints may fall into the worst of sins unless restrained by grace, and that therefore we must watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. There is a natural proneness to sin in the best of men, and they must be held back as a horse is held back by the bit, or they will run into it. David perfectly understands presumptuous sins, or presumptuous, um, how does he say it here? Presumptuous sins, they get the idea of intentional sins. David wants the Lord to rein him back from intentionally sinning. What does that tell us about David's understanding of God? He understands that, David, that God can sovereignly keep you from sin. And that is David's desire. Lord, keep me from sin. Keep me from falling into this. Keep them from having control over me. And then, and only then, shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I think this is wonderful. David rests in the sovereign provision of God. Only after he has been forgiven, made clean, and kept from future sin by the grace of God, does he even dare to think that he can be blameless and innocent by great, of, of the great transgression. 
He understands that he can only be considered blameless. He only can be considered innocent because God has made him clean. Because God has declared him blameless and innocent. He rests in no righteousness of his own, but in the forgiveness of God. He rests in the forgiveness of God. And finally, we get to, this, to, the, to, to the great ending of this chapter. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He prays that the words of his mouth, which is that which he speaks, and the meditation of his heart, meaning the thoughts in his mind, would be acceptable in God's sight. And he's still getting across this idea that you can do this for me. May them be that way, Lord. David pleads for the Lord to clean every thought of his mind so that he may speak and think from that which is acceptable and pleasing to God. And notice how David addresses God here at the end. O Lord, Jehovah, like the song we sang, my rock and my redeemer. We are not quite sure how much David understands of the, of the, the progressing redemptive plan of God. But we yet we know one thing perfectly clear. He understands perfectly well that it is the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, that is his Redeemer. It is the Lord that, has, that is saving him from his sins. It is the Lord that is his righteousness, as he says in uh, earlier Psalms. John Gill points this out. Had, the, had been the strength of his life, God has been the strength of his life and of his salvation, the rock on which he was built and established and redeemed, and the Redeemer who had redeemed his life from destruction and out of the hands of all his enemies and from all his iniquities. What is David trusting in uh, to be cleansed from his sin? The redemption that is in God. And so what do we say here in, in summary to, to Psalm 19? Well, the first is this, that creation reveals the glory of God. Creation reveals God. But his word reveals that we have fallen short of him, that we have rebelled against him. It is a, a scary thing the word reveals. As Psalm 1 says, Psalm 1 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's frightening. Because the word also says there is none righteous. But yet the word also reveals the Redeemer. And David understood this as being in Jehovah. But with further revelation, we understand this is in through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Who by his blood we are redeemed. By his sacrifice we are bought back from sin. It's a beautiful passage of the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of God over the hearts, minds, and sins of man to make a way for him to be redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in Psalm 19 and the story that it tells and the trust that David has in his Redeemer. May we, Lord, likewise Uphold your word as more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey. And may we live in it. May it live in us. And may we trust you as our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen.